Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. This is the podcast that seeks out the books that have shaped the lives of some of our best-known public figures to delve deep into their inspirations and influences and to find out more about why their reading matters. Deborah Meaden is my guest this time, the entrepreneur best known perhaps for Dragon's Den, her passion for animals and animal welfare, and for saying things that very few others in the business world would dare about Brexit, about politicians, and the need for the corporate world to get serious about climate change. Deborah Meaden, I am so thrilled to welcome you to Books to Live By. I wondered if we could start by just talking about books for you as a child, when did you start reading? Were you a big reader? First of all, thank you very much for inviting me on to talk about to talk about my favourite books. It's a lovely thing to be talking about. And I'm not sure I was a huge reader. I was, I'm, and I, I was, and I am a bit of an odd reader because I'm voracious and then I don't read at all for ages and ages and ages. And then I get into this sort of all-consuming desire to read. And I was a little bit like that as a child. But I'm also quite impatient. So if I don't get into a book quite quickly or if it doesn't catch my imagination, I am that person who can just put it down and think life is too short. I won't be finishing that book. And what is it that kicks off your voracious episodes? Is it is it a book or is it a, a state of mind? I've got a feeling it's a state of mind because I've passed several books by and then sort of come back to them later when I'm in a voracious mood and thought, oh, yes, no, goodness, I need to go on to that. So I've got a feeling it's a state of mind. But often it will be triggered by somebody saying, have you read? And then I will read that and then I'll want another book and then I'll want another book and another book, you know, and, and that's that's the voracious moment. And then, of course, life cuts in. You don't have time to read. And then it kind of disappears out of my life again. I know this is a, a gross uh, sort of judgment, but in life, anecdotally, the business people that I've tended to talk to in conversation and things, often when they talk about reading either they don't have time for it or they tend to read books about how to be a millionaire or how to I don't know you know all of those books about how to be a business person and they seem to be utterly engrossed you know Richard Branson's book about you know building an empire or uh, that does not seem to be the case with you so is reading very separate for you from from the rest of 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 your existence I can tell you now I have never ever read a how to become a millionaire or 60 minutes how to be a successful business person in 30 seconds. I have never, ever read any of those books. Um, I might have read quotes from some of them, but I've never finished a complete book um, because, uh, well, not because for me, the, and you, you'll see that from my choice of books, they kind of take me to another place. They are they are separate. You know, they put me into we're going to talk about, you know, some of my childhood books and they they, they remind me of things or they they as I say, they take me to another world or to another place. And it isn't necessarily escapism because some of the books I've chosen are very, very real indeed. But, you know, I live my everyday life. I live business. I get that. I understand that. I want to learn about other stuff. You know, I want to dip into other people's worlds. And that's where my mind gets its rest. My mind doesn't have to rest through doing nothing. My mind rests through learning other stuff and thinking about other stuff. I, I know that you had, um, you know, a slightly peripatetic childhood. Uh, your mum moved around uh, at, for a period. You know, she was a, a single mum uh, and she moved around quite a bit. And uh, you went to a number of boarding schools. And I think school wasn't really for you. But you do seem to have had a very inbuilt sense of purpose at the same time. So when 
when you were feeling that school wasn't very much for you, was it because you weren't academic or because you felt that you were in a hurry to get on and do other things? Um, actually, I think it was probably a combination of those two things. I'm not academic. I'm that person who, if I'm engaged in something, it gets my, I mean, absolute total absorption, you know, and I will know everything about that for a short period of time. I'll forget it. But, you know, for a period of time, it will be the only thing that matters. And then I move on. But it's also fair to say that I'm very impatient. And I knew I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to go into any of the professions and all of the things that everybody else talked about at school. And, you know, all of the career advisors, I wasn't going to do any of that. So it just kind of felt like, you know what, just let me get out there and get on with stuff. So yeah, so I think it's probably a bit of a combination of the two. So let's uh, talk about your first book choice today, uh, which just hurtled me back to childhood because I think it was such a, a formative book, particularly for women of our generation, perhaps, which is Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. I had a very brief flirtation with the idea of riding horses, uh, but I was not really built for it in terms of the fact that I've always been slightly petrified. And I had a friend who used to let me ride her <laughs> pony. And all of that happened during the Black Beauty phase. So when did you read Black Beauty? And what was it that had such an impact on you? Well, I read it probably for the first time when I was about seven. I read it, first of all, because it was about horses and I just loved horses, you know, and, and any book that was about a horse was fair game as far as I was concerned. But it stuck with me because it speaks from the horse's point of view and it talks about the kindnesses, the cruelties, the joys, the awful moments that actually a passive animal that kind of gets passed through people's lives experiences from that animal's point of view. And it had a profound effect on me. From very early days, I've always thought about, I wonder how you feel when I, when I look at an animal. You know, you're looking back at me. What do you see? How do you feel? Um, it's also had a profound effect on me on the basis of the fact that I've now got a collection of horses because once they come into my care, I can't actually pass them on because I genuinely think, oh, no, no, they're going to end up like Black Beauty. They're going to end up having a terrible life. So I do have a rather large collection of horses now. And I'm fortunate because I've got the space for them. And I think that you, at one point, your only other career ambition was to be a show jumper. Is that right? Was that, was that provoked by Black Beauty as well? Well, uh, listen, that was that was when I say ambition, that was a dream because I was rubbish. I mean, you know, you've got to know when you're rubbish at something. I would have loved to have done something with horses um, because I just love being around them. But actually, funnily enough, now as an adult, I don't think I would have enjoyed it because I enjoy horses for their being. You know, I like being around them. I like to smell them. I like them sniffing. You know, I, I just like being around horses. And I actually think when you turn them into your profession, you can kind of lose some of that. They become this thing that you, you need to, you can still love them. You can still have a great relationship with them. Um, but, you know, you get this kind of competitive edge. And I just like, I just like horses. You know, I just like, I like, you know, I like them um, just being around them. So, yeah, so I'm rather glad that I wasn't good enough to um, to be in that profession. It's not just horses, is it, though? You've got quite the menagerie, and I think half of them are rescue animals and the rest are vicious geese. <laughs> uh, we lost one of our vicious geese, and now I feel really bad. <laughs> I didn't know how much I liked. We had three very angry geese, and I didn't know how much part of my life they were, and then, of course, one of them popped his clogs, sadly. Um, and, uh, uh, and and now I'm like, well, I actually quite miss geese number three. Um, but yes, we have we have a lot of animals around. But we have, the, you know, we're lucky enough. We have the space. Um, it, Paul and I both love our animals. Um, and we feel very lucky to be able to share our lives with so many of them. The interesting thing as well, just going back to, to Black Beauty, is that for those who were brought up on the TV version, the book is barely recognisable to that show, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the most widely read children's books of all, all time, but it wasn't meant to be. It was written, as you were just pointing out, to, to expose the misery of, of millions of working horses. So do you think that, 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 in a way, the TV series was very misleading? Did you watch the TV series? I did watch the TV series, but I actually did. I found it even when I watched it, and that what we're doing my early teens, maybe when I was 13. Uh, but even then, I felt slightly cheated by it because it didn't tell the story of Black Beauty at all. It was a series on a young girl and a horse that was black, and that was just about its only connection to the original book because, you know, 
this horse always saved the day a little bit like Lassie, you know, and it didn't show the, as you say, the misery of the of the lives of a lot of these horses. Um, and we're talking about millions of horses, you know, in London, that was the transport system. So, you know, it didn't show any of the dark side. I mean, Black Beauty's pretty dark book. And, you know, as a child, you know, it hurt me, it upset me, you know, and so it should, you know, that's the point of it. And it made me feel joyous and it made me love animals and, it, you know, it, it did many things for me. Um, but no, the TV series was nothing like it. I've got a feeling my dog is going to burst through the door in a minute. <laughs> oh, don't worry. We like, you know, the vestiges of normal life all around. There's also, I suspect, a kind of slogan um, uh from the book that that really well it's not a slogan it's a line from the book but but it sounds to me like it could have been you know your own motivational uh, slogan which is we shall all have to be judged according to our works whether they be towards man or towards beast uh, do you remember that line did it have particular poignancy for it or do you think it's just coincidental that that does seem to chime with a lot of the things that that you you talk about I don't remember that. I don't actually remember any of the lines from the book, to be perfectly honest. I remember the book. I am a bit like that about books. You know, when I think of books, I think of the whole thing. You know, how, does, how did it make me feel? It's, it, I almost see it as a whole book. And it's really annoying, you know, because some of the things you read, I remember that. I must remember that. I must write that down. I must remember that. But you're right. Absolutely, that line tells the story of the way I feel about, about life. But it isn't just that line, is it? It's the whole book that supports it. You know, very rarely is it one bit in a book that you think, actually, that tells the whole story. You know, it needs all the other words around it to kind of support it. And sometimes you read something that's incredibly profound because you're sitting within that book and you're reading that book and you're you're in that space. But actually, when you pull it out of that context, it kind of loses some of its energy you know it kind of loses its its being and it becomes one of those quotes that people put up not me by the way people put up on their office walls with pictures of whales (laughs) well you've never done that I can't believe it I did do that for a very short period of time. They were up for about a month. And I thought, what? No, this is when I was a, in my very early 20s. I thought, I'm going to make my mark here. And I just thought, well, what am I doing? I went round and took them all down again. <laughs> it's interesting you say that that thing about not remembering, you know, specifics from books, because I'm exactly the same. Oh. I remember the feeling of it, what it provoked in me. And I, 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 I'm totally not one of those people who considered a dinner party and, and quote you lines from no. their favourite novels. They are often men, I've noticed. And Do I don't you know, know why. That's really interesting because I was talking to, uh, to my sister about it. We were out riding today and I was talking to a girl about that. And we said exactly the same thing. We said it's really interesting to me. Paul will read a book and he will retain, it does a lot of historic, this is my husband, Paul, he'll retain all of the information. And we'll sit at a dinner party and I think he knows so much stuff. How does he remember all of that? And he'll have told me that information and I will have lost it. <laughs> it will have got, I don't have been, wow, that's amazing. And I would have moved on. But Gail and I both said we deal with our knowledge and our books in a very different way, exactly as you've just said. You know, Mm. what did it make me feel like? What lasting impression has it left on me? Not what words and facts did I get out of it? Well, you've led me beautifully into the book that holds an everlasting resonance for you, which uh, is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which I think you read when you were a child or at least in youth. Again, I actually, I've read that three times. I think the first time I read it, I didn't really understand it. My sister had done it for O-Level. And the first time I, because she, she was raving about it and I read it and I forced myself to read. And I don't really think I got the nuance. Well, there aren't many nuances, to be fair. You know, it's pretty clear. Um, but the first time around, I think I made myself read it and I didn't take it in. I don't know if you get like that, but if I make myself read a book, sometimes I'm just reading the words and I'm not really getting it. And then I read it again and it was like it was the first time I'd ever read the book. And I just thought, I can't, my goodness, I can't believe, I can't believe this. I can't believe I didn't get this from the book originally. But it also, I've always, you know, listen, life is not fair, but I've always sought fairness, you know, in life. I've always sought to be treated fairly and to treat others fairly, you know, whatever that means. That's quite a naive thing to say because I say fairness isn't, you know, it doesn't really exist. Life is not fair. But to kill a mockingbird to me, you know, I saw somebody in Atticus Finch who was, you know, who was just 
He was just bound to do the right thing. At the expense of him, his family, you know, his life around him was absolutely bound to do the right thing. And, you know, I, I just can't think of a, another character in fiction that I think holds the same sense of fairness as Atticus Finch. It's interesting you say about fairness and, and life isn't fair. Do you think that we're slightly codding ourselves at the moment with this idea that we can create a world that is perfectly diverse and perfectly equal and, you know, perfectly voiced for every single minority? And uh, and in a way, does that expectation perhaps prevent us from ever achieving progress on it because it becomes a sort of halcyon dream? Well, I well, that's a really good question. I mean, I... I um... Of course we can't reach fairness because fairness doesn't exist and it stands, fairness is in the eye of the beholder, you know, and we all have a view what we think is fair. You know, if you if you think about in your own family, you know, everybody has a different view of what they think is fair and, and however much your parents think I'm trying to be fair to you, you know, you never think they are, you never think they are. So do I think it stops us from ever achieving this utopic vision? I do think... There is a problem with saying if it's not perfect, then it's not acceptable. You know, I think there's a real problem with that. We do need to learn that until everything's perfect, everything is imperfect. And we need to not accept, not accept imperfection in as much as you say, well, that's it then. But understand that actually we need to be imperfect to take the next step. We need to accept imperfection to take the next step and the next step and the next step. So you've kind of got to believe that we can reach perfection. But kind of knowing that you can't, you've just got to keep moving forward. I think that's a really great, I think that's a really, really important point. And right now, you know, you see it on social media, you see it with the way you know, we all want to look perfect. We all want to use filters and look amazing and say amazing things. And, and you know, it worries me that we don't take any pleasure in the imperfect at all. You seem to have quite a healthy attitude to it, though. I read a quote of yours that said, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, because obviously I can't remember what's in books or exactly your quotes. But you said something like, uh, I think I'm perfect, because if I'm not doing something well, I just move on from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I d yes, that's right. But I know I'm not perfect. I think that that's the, uh, you know, that's the point, isn't it? I, th I just think, well, no, I tell you what my, my thing is. If I do something, I like to be good at it. I don't think I'm going to be good at everything. Um, so I will try something. And if I can't get good of it quite quickly, I do tend to be that person who doesn't persist, who thinks, actually, I'm not enjoying this. Life's too short. I enjoy being good or I enjoy having signs that I could be good. And therefore, I will move on. People often ask me, you know, what's the biggest mistake I've made in my life? I haven't got a clue. Because at the time, it was like the, the worst thing, the worst thing. But I don't carry it around with me. And I think that's a really important thing. You know, I don't put it in a big bag, fill up my sack of things, terrible mistakes I've made. Because, you know, two days later, it really wasn't as bad. It wasn't as huge as I thought it was at the time. And I've learned that, you know, just move on. What do you think created that resilience then? Um, I, I don't know. I've always been... I don't know whether you're born confident or not, or whether or not I just saw a mother who was in really dire straits, who just who worked her way out of it. And therefore, it didn't worry me. It kind of made me just think, well, actually, if ever I get into that, then I'll just work my way out of it too. You know, it just kind of showed me that however bad things may be, there's usually a path through. That isn't true for everybody, but it certainly has been for me in my life. So I think, and confidence builds resilience, doesn't it? You just kind of think, okay, well, I, I, I'm not good at that. I'm not going to do that then. I'm going to go and do something else. One of the Obviously, the main theme of To Kill a Mockingbird is, uh, uh, you know, about racism. Race, yeah. um, and I, I wondered how much you'd been conscious of that growing up and how much the book informed, uh, you know, your sense of, of, of prejudice and whether it's something you've been aware of in the business world as you've worked your way through it. Because let's face it, until very recently, it's been a very white world, hasn't it? Absolutely. And well... Um, interestingly, um, it came a, a bit of a shock to me because when I was, um, I think my first school, my best friend was Nigerian. And it's actually quite a mixed, mixed school. There was quite a, you know, quite a lot of people, Asians and Africans and, and 
you know, all colours. So mm. I, so when I sort of went into the big wide world and read a book like that, I thought, blimey, I, I had no, I had no idea. This I must have been about, okay, and I must have been about twelve or thirteen, maybe. And I found it pretty blinking shocking. Although, of course, under lying in the background of those years. Um, would have been all the stuff that was going on, particularly in the States, you know, all of the awful stuff. I was alive. You know, I look at some of those black and white Rosa Parks and thinking, that's in my lifetime. You know, it's unbelievable. Um, but it didn't really touch my life, I'm very pleased to say. And I therefore think that I've dealt with prejudices by a little bit like I deal with my mistakes. I do believe that if you, and this is for me personally, as in gender prejudices, if you recognize and take somebody else's prejudice on board you kind of give it power so my whole thing in business life and I've been very lucky because having your own business generally means that I'm the customer you know I I can generally say I want to deal with you and I don't want to deal with you and generally if I've come across people who have had a problem with dealing with me then I've, then I've thought, well, <laughs> we've got a problem, haven't we? I'm going to have to take my business elsewhere. Um, so, and But I do understand that I am in a slight, well, not slightly, I'm a very privileged position to be able to do that. Because, you know, I've come, ac- I've come across prejudice in my life, but I've been able to leave it behind. And not everybody can do that. And what about um, inviting or um, inspiring um, a, a more diverse workforce when it comes to business or people to feel, you know, for a long time, women didn't feel they could start businesses. And I think that that is also true of some members of ethnic communities who just, they're not represented, they don't see themselves uh, reflected in, 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 in business. And so they think it's not for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't actively set out, I don't actively set out to say, well, look, I want a completely diverse um, workforce, or I want, you know, I want to work with diverse entrepreneurs. But it happens. Um, It happens if you start valuing people on their actual, you know, what they can bring to a business. And I think it's very clear when I talk to people, I'm just interested, you know, okay, if it's a business, if somebody's pitching to me, all I'm interested in is, you know, is it a good idea? Are you the right person to take this forward? You know, what are the gaps? So so none of that deals with gender or race. None of that is relevant. And I think, again, if I don't give it relevance, because it has no relevance as far as I'm concerned, and you focus on the things that are relevant... You know, how smart are you? How good are you at this? You know, how committed are you? What do you know about your market? If you, if you concentrate on all those things, the rest just happens. And and I was asked about six months ago, somebody said to me, you know, how many female entrepreneurs you invested in? And I just thought, you know, I haven't got a clue. I genuinely haven't got a clue, but I am going to, I'm going to count. Thank you. I will, I will look at that. I'm actually invested in, it's about, a, at the time, it's about a 50-50 split. And, and I wouldn't have known. You know, purely and simply, good business, good idea, good people. I don't, I'm really not interested in, in anything else. Do you think you have to actively discriminate then to end up without the sort of uh, figures that you're talking about in terms of, you know, around-ish 50-50 of, of female and, and male businesses? You know, do you think that there's there's something subliminal that has to go on? if you If you find yourself investing in businesses that are, you know, 90% of them are run by men or, you know, um, 90% of them are run by white women and men, you know, that that is actually a choice that you have to perhaps dig a bit deeper to recognise. I try not to because I think it has held me in good stead simply. Now, this is me personally, and then I'll talk about the wider business. Me personally, I think it's held me in very good stead to simply judge on the things that I think a business, a good business proposition, or somebody, a good person working for you, just just stick to the just stick to the criteria. You know what makes this person good. I don't really care what gender, color, you know, whatever they are, doesn't matter. Now that's not true in the wider business world, uh, and and I've definitely walked into environments, and I still do very very often walk into environments where I think, well. This isn't very diverse, is it? You know, I might be the only woman in the room for a start, you know, and there's absolutely no diversity in terms of race. 
Um, you know, and that definitely still happens when you get to feel old boys club. And I do think in those situations, and this goes against every bone of my body, but I do think you need to positively discriminate to break it, to change it. Because if you do walk into that, now I'm really, I'm superbly confident. I will walk into those rooms and it still crosses my mind. You know, I still think I see. So I'm the only woman in here, you know. Or there's two of us. Wow, well done you. Hurrah, you know. So so I actually do think it's a place for positive discrimination to just make things change. And exactly what you've just said, to enable an environment when people walk into it, they feel like, okay, this looks like me. Because mm. too often people walk into an environment and think, what's this, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Not only do they not want me, I don't want to be here. You know, I don't want to be in this environment, you know. And, and the thing about that is then you lose really good people for all the wrong reasons. Interestingly, of course, To Kill a Mockingbird it isn't just a book about race. It's it's also about class. And, you know, in some ways they go hand in hand. Poverty is the thing most discriminated against, I guess, in, in many ways across the world. Uh, you've spoken pretty powerfully about snobbery. You've said, I can't stand it because it's always founded on the wrong thing. It's founded on money or education. It's never founded on that's a good person or they're in a difficult situation. Do you feel, have you felt in, in your life that people have been snobby towards you? Because you, you are a sort of mixture of two things. You've had, uh, you know, a lot of money since actually your your 20s, uh, but you might not sound like you've been to Oxbridge or, you know, like the most most business people yeah well exactly like but like most business people might sound yeah. i don't know I, I think you're a you know you're a, you're pretty unique well so i will at school i went to uh, godolphin in salisbury for two years and at school my best friend's parents asked for her to be moved away from me at school um because i wasn't the right type so um and I think that's probably where my, you know, that was the first time anything like that had ever happened to me. And I I couldn't, you know, she and I were still best friends. But, you know, I thought, my goodness, I think maybe that's what that might be where my my real dislike for snobbery comes from. You know, it's just like, really? You know, <laughs> and, and certainly I can walk into environments where um, intellectualism is in very highly valued. And I can sometimes feel it because sometimes I think the language can get overly complex. Florid, florid. <laughs> Absolutely. And I take great pleasure in talking about my days as a bingo caller and using my language in a very plain and simple way just to send the signal out you don't impress me much <laughs> it's because it definitely happens. It definitely happens. But I, as I say, I, I, the good side is that I'm pretty confident, so I can do that. But I can also see other people in that environment, you know, men and women, just kind of bowing under the pressure, under the weight of this intellectualism, you know. And these are good people. People are really capable and really good at doing their jobs. But, you know, they're just kind of somehow convinced that they're just lesser. You've never felt insecure about it? No, no, not at all. No, I've, you're right there, Mariella. I've had a very peculiar life. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been a lot, I've been in a lot of situations. I've been at Butlins and Minehead, and at the same time, you know, going off to boarding school, and that's been a real gift for me because I've crossed so many. I've lived in so many different lives. You know, most people live within, within some quite, you know, broad or narrow lines. But you know, I've, I've, I've crossed so many different walks of life, and I think that's been an absolute gift. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, I think that you um, left a school uh, uh, after your O-levels. Is that right? And then you yeah. went to Brighton College to, the, to Brighton Tech. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And and I think that when when you were there, which would have been in the 1970s, you wrote a dissertation on climate change. And so you you displayed very much a sort of pioneering spirit in the in the field of environmentalism and and climate change and and so on. So I'm I'm thinking that this next book choice, Spix's Macar by Tony Juniper, is a reflection of all of those sensibilities. I'm wondering when you first started thinking about the environment. I've always thought about that. I don't remember when I didn't worry about the environment, actually. I think when you're in touch with, when you love animals and you see the effect that we're having on those, that's a very short step to actually looking around at at the environment. But it always felt when I was younger, and particularly when I was at college, it always felt like something was going to happen way beyond, and it was something that was going to happen in the future. You know, we were going to buy biodiversity loss and climate change. It was going to be way beyond my lifetime. I think what is pretty stark and worrying for the moment is the fact that it's here. <laughs> climate's changed and is changing. It has certainly, it certainly sped up. But I think I chose Spix's Macaw because for me, it was one of the, the, the tragedies of humanity which is, we are amazing. The human race is amazing. So the story of Spix's Macaw is basically the race to save the last Spix's Macaw. I mean, we only we only discovered them 100 years ago and we've managed to um, capture them and kill them and or put them into captivity to the point of they were on the verge of extinction in the wild. So it was a race to actually release some Spix's macaw back into the wild, take them from captivity, release them back into the wild while they were still a pair of Spix's macaw still in the wild that could teach them how to live in the wild. And why it really hit home, it was within our gift you know, we had enough Spix's Macaw in private collections and in zoos. It was just pure human greed that got in the way. To me, it's just an example of, you know, humans are amazing. We can sort this thing. That isn't the question. The question is, are we going to? And are we going to do it in time? You say humans are amazing, but this book would very much uh, be seen as a confirmation that we're not that amazing. Well, we are. We can do amazing stuff. But you're absolutely right. That's why this book, you know, it's why it meant so much to me. I thought, look, how can we be this awesome? How can we be able to achieve the things that we can achieve and then just allow pure greed and money and self-interest stand in the way of preventing a species from becoming extinct in the wild. How can we do that? And do you think, I mean, this is a book that would motivate someone who hadn't already thought about all of these issues, obviously. I mean, it's also, uh, you know, kind of an amazing book. It's a part of thriller. You know, there's wealthy collectors, illegal dealers, international travel, real jeopardy because you're trying to save the species. I mean, there's everything you could possibly want. But this isn't the book that inspired you. Was there an environmental book that's inspired you? Is it an area that you've read a lot of books in? Or is this a sort of very much a standalone read? Um, no. So I, actually, I, I was there were several books I, 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 was, I was considering talking about this, Cod. Um, oh, I, love that, I, I, I know, love that book. I know, I know. <laughs> and again, why are we doing this? You know, give it a break. <laughs> um, so COD, I absolutely love. Because I mean, COD, I, I loved because it was it was a historical book. It had everything about it. You know, it was it was an environmental book. It was an historical book. You know, it was full of those wow facts. 
sapiens, you know, again, an explanation of the human race and how we are where we are and, uh, you know, how amazing we could be. But I tend not to read environmental books as a topic. You know, I think I like Spix's McCaw. Um, because I, w- I was interested in Spix's Bacore. I didn't pick it up as an environmental book. I just thought it would be a, it looked to me like an interesting read generally, as you say, it's, you know, it's got a lot more to it than just sort of, of and, I, and I use the words banging on about the environment because you do have to be careful not to bang on about the environment all the time because people go, kind of go glazed. So I think, you know, it had a lot more to it than, than, than this underlying thread of, uh, of we're really going to let this happen. You have to be careful about uh, being described as banging on about the environment. You also probably have to be careful to avoid being accused of banging on about animals to the detriment of of human beings. And I know you got quite animated about the the Kabul airlift and animal rescue, uh, which you commented on. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, I think my issue, and and I just kept what I just kept repeating, is it wasn't one or the other. I think the way humanity treats animals says an awful lot about humanity. The way humanity treats humans says a lot too. But we do make animals dependent on us in this world and therefore we do have responsibility to do our best. And in this particular instance, you can't blame somebody who headed up a charity that looked after animals in Afghanistan for doing his absolute utmost to get those animals out. You've got to, I don't care whether you like animals or not, that was his job. That was his role in life. He had managed to raise the funds for a uh, for a private plane and he did offer the seats up to take extra people out of Afghanistan. So it wasn't one or the other. The animals were going into the hold and the seats were available. So, so to me, that's a no-brainer. It got completely politically hijacked. And the reason I kept jumping in was just to pull people back to those facts, which are this is not people versus animals. This is fill the plane with animals. You can't put a people in the hold. Fill the hold with animals. Sorry, fill the plane with people. You can't put animals, people, you know what I mean. <laughs> Let them all on. That's what I say. Let them all on. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because you're also, you're sitting uh, wearing a tusk cap. Um, and I know you're a big supporter of, of Tusk. I also know that you once found yourself in, in the remarkable situation of, of, of nursing an injured elephant. Tusk, of course, being an elephant charity. That must have been quite an amazing experience for someone like you, who, you know, is already so devoted to animal welfare and to find yourself with one of this, these extraordinary creatures, super intelligent in the wild that you could do something for. Amazing. So uh, it was a it was an elephant called Mountain Bull. It was a very important element. It was a big tusker. They were trying to create a wildlife corridor between where these animals were and uh, Mount Kenya. They were building a bridge and he was the elephant. They had chosen his route. So in the hope that they the other ele- elephants would follow Mountain Bull. So it was quite an important. Um, I mean, all animals are important, but he was very important. And we'd had um, I happened to be in Kenya at the time and we had I heard over the radio with the people that I was with saying Mountain Bull's been shot. We don't know how bad he is. And uh, at the time, I was using a helicopter because I was right up in um, the north of Kenya. They asked if they could borrow a helicopter to try and track him down, to tranquilize him. And to so sure enough, uh, that's what happened. So we happened we found ourselves in the middle of, of this, you know, shooting of an elephant, but for a good reason, tranquilizing, you know, an elephant that had been shot, tranquilizing it and trying to pump enough um, antibiotics into it to uh, to make to help it survive, which we did manage to do, unfortunately, sadly. About three years ago, I had a message saying Mountain Bull had been had been killed. Oh, so he didn't survive for long. You, um, you mentioned helicopter there. I have to ask you, because you're such an outspoken environmentalist, do you walk the walk? Well, I do, actually. Um, so I, I, I don't helicopter now. I probably wouldn't have then either, to be honest, except that the only place, the only way to reach this region was to do that. No, I do. I Paul and I have cut our flights down. We've said we promise that we'll do one maximum one long haul flight a year. I have pledged not to fly domestically. Unfortunately, I might have to break that to go to Edinburgh 
once this year. But at least I'm trying, you know, what I say is that we we do very, very thoughtful travel. I use the train most of the time. The reason, the reason I can't go to Edinburgh is it's nine hours on the train from Somerset and nine hours back. And I just can't get those two days out of my diary. So, um, but no, we. I absolutely, I don't think I have any right to sit and either worry or talk about the environment if I am not prepared to change my lifestyle in some way. Um, let's move on to your next book, which is Bill Bryson's A Short History of, of Nearly Everything. Now, I left school as you did. Um, I, I left completely at 16. So there's so much stuff that I feel like I don't know about. And this feels to me like one of those books. It was like the um, Alain de Botton did this one called How Proust Can Change Your Life. And I knew I was never going to read Proust's original book. But that seemed to me a very manageable way of kind of getting the knowledge without having to go through the long process of, of reading it. And and in a way, I feel like this Bill Bryson book is a bit like that as well. What was its appeal to you? Well, it, it, I mean, I think he's a wonderful, he's a very easy read and he has this fantastic way of taking these pretty complex subjects and sort of boiling it down into words that I think, oh, I actually understand that. But it is just one of those books. Um, actually, Paul read it. And he was really annoying me because he was spending, he's saying, he kept saying, Deborah, Deborah, listen to this, listen to this. Did you know? It's like, shut up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing other stuff. So I thought, I took, but Paul, I, be quiet because I'm going to read the book. <laughs> so, and I'm not sure I thought I was going to, but he then handed me the book because I had said I'm going to read the book. Um, I know he said it to keep him quiet. And of course, I opened the first pages and then I just spent the whole book going, I can't believe it. I can't believe that we exist. I can't believe the world exists. I can't believe the universe works like that. You know, it was just one of those books that you just every page you turn thought, I have no idea. You know, it's and, and, and that when I say things like humans are awesome, I mean, we're pretty awesome. The very fact we even exist is pretty awesome, you know, and, and, and I think that book is, is what that is all about. It is unbelievable that we even exist, that our world exists, that our universe exists. It was a bit of a first in a way as well, because I think it was at the very beginning of this whole sort of movement to make science perhaps more integrated in our lives. And it's something that really accelerated during the pandemic, that sense that, uh, you know, we all became interested in science. Are you interested in science or was it just that this book was a great read? I'm not interested enough in science to seek it out. I'm not into science per se. However, it it isn't delivered sciency in Bill Bryson's book. You know, it's it, that's that's why I enjoy it. You know, it's it's delivered in a really interesting, fascinating way. And the truth is that actually, when you look, when you actually understand science enough, not to just see it as this all really, really complicated stuff with long words and symbols, once you start understanding, you know, what's behind it, I mean, it is amazing. It's an amazing subject. I wish my brain, I was terrible at physics and science and chemistry at school just didn't interest me, which is I find odd because I, you know, I'd, I'd like the stuff that it reveals. I find like, why? That's amazing. But I have, haven't got the brain that can, you know, that can work through that to get to understand it well enough to really appreciate it. But this book did it for me. And I think that's why I liked it so much. It's interesting you say that. I interviewed um, Brian Cox today, Professor Brian Cox, and, and he was answering things. And he's such a nice guy and he, he really does, you know, sort of make it all more understandable. But I was sort of sitting and I was listening to him and I realised that my mind had just sort of wandered off and I was like <laughs> listening to the music of his voice and I was thinking of the stars and the planets, but I actually didn't really understand what he was saying. I think there's particular brains for particular yeah, things, aren't there? I think so. I think so. You show me a symbol and my my, my, my mind goes, oh. And that's, that's maths as well, you know. I'm like, oh, no, don't anything with a sine and cosine. I don't know, I don't know. But hold on a minute. How can you be a brilliant businesswoman, super successful and and not be good at maths? So I'm good at numbers, mm. but numbers isn't necessarily maths. Or, well, I mean, it is maths, but it's a very narrow part of maths. And my brain definitely... Um, I don't like numbers, by the way. Everybody thinks I love numbers because I'm always <laughs> asking about the numbers. But 
numbers to me in a business are just a map. They tell me where do I need to look? You know, what's going well? What's not going well? Where do I need to focus? Is this working as we thought it was going to work? So to me, it's just purely and simply, a, you know, a map. I don't actually like numbers, but I don't know how that works because I can literally look at a spreadsheet and there will be hundreds of numbers on it. And I'll go to the one that's not right or the one that is not, you know, and I don't know how that happens. It's kind of recognition. It's number recognition rather than me actually working stuff out. You know, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's all magic to me. <laughs> um, you have mentioned your husband, Paul, a couple of times. And I, I know you've been together over four decades, which is a, a great achievement for any uh, relationship. None of your books are about relationships apart from this last choice but it's not about that kind of relationship so are you not interested in emotional stories of the classic variety um no I mean, you see I would call a book like Black Beauty and I would call Spix's McCall and I would call To Kill a Mockingbird emotional books but I know what you mean. They're not relationship-based books. You know, they're not mm-hmm. romantic books or... No, and, and I really... They, they don't... In, honestly, don't interest me at all. You know, I've got, I've got my own romance and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't need to... When I said at the, at the very beginning, when, I, when we were talking about books take me to another place, mm-hmm. I kind of don't need to go to another place in terms of relationships and things. You know, I'm, you know, here I am, I'm living my life and it's my relationship. I don't need to look into others or, or you know, it, it just doesn't interest me so that kind of relationship no but I I would I wouldn't say that I don't like emotional books because all of the books I've talked about and and the one we're about to talk about and I think they're quite emotional books you know there's a lot of emotion in them very true and very right for you to put me straight on that um the lady uh, in the van is actually a book about a relationship though isn't it a, a true story it's described as uh, it's by Alan Bennett of course what was it that appealed to you about this. I mean, it's a wonderful book. It's a humorous book. And in fact, it's the second book that you've chosen with a bit of humor in it. We didn't mention the, the humor in Bill Bryson. So was is, is humor a big draw for you? Yes, I must say, I, I think a book is a good book when I got to laugh out loud, laugh out loud, you know, and I, I, I get a, I find myself alone in a room chuckling and I think that's great. You know, that we all like laughter, you know, surely we all like laughter. It makes you feel good. Um, so, yes, I think it is important. But what I loved about that tiny little book is it just had it had everything. But. I've, I found it an odd, you know, we talked about relationships. It is a relationship book, but my goodness, what an odd relationship. You know, uh, and Alan Bennett steadfastly refusing to accept that he's kind in any way whatsoever. You know, but of course he is, for goodness sake. You know, he he offers the lady in the van, you know, he offers her his, his parking space to to live on basically against all odds because she's not that appreciative <laughs> but he he steadfastly will not say I did this from kind I just did it because you know I it was easier than me walking down the road and sorting out people who were shouting at her you know and I, I it just to me it was absolutely fascinating it's one of the loveliest act of kindness for absolutely no appreciation whatsoever in fact just abuse but the humour, some of the way, I mean, some of her, I wish I'd met her. Her outfits sound extraordinary. You know, I could, uh, her uh, her hat made of a, you know, a dish cloth on the front of it and a washing up bowl. And you just think, oh, you know, extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Did you admire her as well? Because she was definitely, um, she was definitely forthright in her views and uh, didn't hold back from expressing them. And I have to say, there's a few echoes there with your dear self. <laughs> no, so I did admire her until I got to the end. Um, and uh, I was loving her. You know, I thought, look, she, she's eccentric. She's living her own life. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. So lots of things, which I admired. And then I got to the end and realised, because I'd kind of expected there to be a reason for her living as she was living. You know, something had happened to her and there was a lot of gossip around, you know, maybe that was the case. And then you get to the end and you actually realise, actually, she wasn't really a very nice person. So for me, it was the truth. And therefore, you wouldn't expect Alan Bennett to do anything other than tell the truth. So that was the truth. And he didn't romanticise it at the end. That was just the fact. 
But for me, it would have been tied up in a slightly neater bow, you know, had we discovered that something something had happened to her that had forced her to the streets and she was really a lovely person. And um, so, so, but, but that added to my enjoyment of the book. It felt very real. You know, it felt like a, well, it was a diary. I mean, he was keeping a diary at the time. So it felt a very true and real testament to how she lived. But she was a survivor, wasn't she? And um, I wondered if you think at all that it's harder to survive and thrive unless you're pretty tough. It's hard to be good and be a survivor. Is that your experience or not? Because you have seemed to have managed both. Um, I think... Oh, I don't know, actually. I don't know what I... I don't know how I would classify a survivor. Because although I would say she was a survivor, she wasn't happy. And although I think that, you know, for for a long time through the book, I kept thinking, well, she's living how she wants to live. But, but I don't know. I don't know. I was left with that uncomfortable feeling because it was... She was living in absolute total squalor. And I can't imagine at the beginning of her life that's what she felt like she wanted to do. So although, yes, she survived... I'm not sure she achieved what she wanted to achieve or she would have wanted to achieve as a young person. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying about being a survivor. I don't really know. I find that hard to talk about because it, you, I, I just get on with stuff. You know, that's it. That's just you, something challenges you, something comes in front of you and you, you find a way over it or around it or, you know, I'm not sure that's being a survivor. I just think I just think it's it's. <laughs> not allowing things to um, stop you doing what you want to do, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Have you achieved uh, what you wanted to achieve then? You see, I would describe you very much as a survivor. And I, I wonder if you think that, you know, the eight-year-old you who started selling flowers as a business and was reading Black Beauty, would she think that you've done what you should have done? Would she be happy with where you are? Well, she would never be happy because there's always more to do. And it's, you know, I, I, big wide world, not done. No idea what that, what the future holds, but never done. But bearing in mind, I'm here with surrounded by my lovely animals and my horses and pretty well a work-life balance. My problem is that I actually love what I do. So for me, it's quite, it, the work-life balance will generally actually come from Paul because I enjoy, I love business. I absolutely love it. So I could do it all the time and I wouldn't feel I was being a workaholic. That's just, I really, I'm doing what I enjoy. So for me, work-life is more about making sure I've got space for all of the other things that I love um, uh, as well. So, you know, I think pretty much on the whole, it gets out of balance at times. Of course it does. Um, but pretty much on the whole, I think I've got that that okay um, at the moment you know who, who knows that could change um surrounded by animals um and and with a husband who i think's okay <laughs> <laughs> deborah mooden it's been an absolute delight talking to you about your books to live by thank you so much for sharing them with me no thank you i've actually properly thoroughly enjoyed that thank you Marion. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.